hey, before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about a series that begins next week. Um, next week, I started teaching a series called Anti-Hero. And an anti-hero is something that I never even heard of as a kid. Like, there was no such thing when I was a kid. There were heroes and there were bad guys, you know? There were faces and heels, if you were a wrestling fan. Like, they're good guys, bad guys. But the anti-hero uh, is kind of the new idea. The idea of you have to show the dark side of the hero, so you've got cartoons with, like, this great hero, but he's also got kind of a dark side. And, and so, for whatever reason, that's an interesting thing that, that people have done. And in comedy and in comics and in storytelling and things. But as you look at the scriptures, you're also going to find this. You're going to find that there are people whose lives made a gigantic difference uh, in, in the story of God. And at the same time, those people had a definite underside, like a definite dark closet. And so what we're going to start next week is a three-week series where we're going to look at the foolish judge from Judges 13 through 16. We're going to look at a lying prostitute. Those are harsh words, aren't they? For the Joshua 1 through 6. And we're going to look at a cheating king in First and Second Kings. All people who God used to do interesting things, but all people who also had to intentionally turn away from some struggles in their life in order to become that person that they ultimately would become. So the anti-hero starts next week. I encourage you to bring your friends. It's intentionally a back-to-school time where we're inviting people. We're bringing folks with us to church, and this will be a series designed to help people understand how the grace of God works in their life, uh, and I would encourage you to consider that. So it's going to be a good thing. Let's pray together. Lord, I trust you, and I ask that you would help me, Lord, to do a good job communicating today. Um, there is so much to say, and yet um, I want to say it in a concise way that's helpful and good to people as we consider and think about our lives. Lord, we trust you. Amen. I own two pickup trucks. Uh, now, before that sounds like a brag... Let me tell you that one of them has 280,000 miles on it, and the other one has 250,000 miles on them. Uh, so together, I got over a million miles worth of, well, that's wrong, 500,000 miles worth of, uh, worth of pickup trucks. These are, these are those two trucks on a good day. Like, they've been washed. They look nice. They do, not, they do not normally look like this. This is not normally the way. But this is a day when uh, they were, here's the thing, though. Uh, we're kind of living in a time period where people are buying fewer and fewer of these, and man, that hurts. Uh, but they're buying more and more of stuff like what I'm now driving. That. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not picking on the Prius. I actually enjoy it. But for the sake of today, let me just, uh, let me just be funny. So uh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not the person in the room with a fully electric car. But there's, there is somebody <laughs> like that. So, uh, and, and, and anyway, so and not only that, she, she didn't buy the electric car. She married the guy who already had one. So that's good to know. You can be a single guy with a full ele fully electric car and still meet a woman. <laughs> oh, he already, he already had you em emotionally. Okay. Find the woman first. <laughs> that's what she just said. Find the woman first before you go with a fully electric car. Uh, <laughs> so, so our world is kind of talking about that right now. Like, are we moving to all electric vehicles? Just, just for fun, okay? This is not a debate. We are just laughing around. How many of you are kind of excited about having either a hybrid or, or a fully electric car at some point in the future? How many of you are excited about that? Oh, my gosh. 
she has one and she didn't raise her hand. She's like, <laughs> uh, how many of you are like, uh, I wrote this down, I want to get it just right. Um, so this is the way I would once have described to me, like maybe you bought the first Prius that you could find when it became available 22 years ago, believe it or not, uh, and at the turn of the millennium, or maybe you will be driving a lifted 4x4 Chevy Silverado or Ford F-150 or Dodge Ram with the greatest horsepower producing gas burning power plant that they build for the rest of your life. Like maybe that's where you are. How many of you are more in that camp? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, we have a really big carbon footprint here at Woodlawn Church. Um, so here's the issue with electric cars that we talk about. And I promise today's not about electric cars. But uh, the, the issue is, okay, we now know how to build them. Uh, and, and some of them are pretty cool. I don't know if you've ever ridden in one. I, I've, I've been teasing my friend over here, but I have ridden in Pete's little bitty tiny car. And at 40 miles an hour, he punched it and it spun the tires. Going like, it, was like, it was like, felt like the, the American muscle kind of thing. And it's, the car's that long. Like it's just, the, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty powerful. It really is. It's pretty amazing. So we, we've built the cars. We know how to do it, right? But what's the challenge? What's the concern? The concern is can the, there's a special word everybody uses. It starts with a G. Can the, can the grid, can the electrical grid handle all of that? Well, I want to take you back. I want to take you back to a, to a different problem that happened a little over 100 years ago. Uh, let's see if it makes sense to you when you think about this. Uh, here goes. The first gasoline automobile was introduced to America in 1893. That's 130 years ago, okay? Then between 1899 and 1909, that 10-year period, nearly 500 different American car companies were launched. 500 companies started making gasoline cars in a 10-year period, that sounds about like if you're on social media and you see all the different electric car companies that are popping up right now. Uh, and by 1913, that's four years later, all but a couple of them were bankrupt, completely bankrupt. Here's the challenge. You see, uh, there was a big, big, big problem. You could not buy gasoline in 1913. Now think about this. Think about what I just said. Uh, you could buy gasoline from a pharmacy or a dry goods store, and they came in half-gallon cans and one-gallon cans. That is how you would buy gasoline, because prior to there being an automobile, the idea was you had a small garden tractor. Uh, you would use it four or five times a year to set out your garden and things, and you would go buy three or four gallons of gasoline, and that was all you needed all year long. So in 1913, when there were 500 different car companies in America, there was not a single drive-up gas station in America. Think about that question people must have been. Henry Ford announces, we've built a car that you can drive from Chicago to Los Angeles in the Model T Ford. If only you can find a way to haul a trailer with 300 gallons of gasoline with you as you go, because there's nothing there. The challenge was this, in order for this vehicle to get from its inception to the destination that people want to go, there has to be something developed in between the two for that vehicle to get where it's supposed to be going. There has to be a grid built in order for it to work, okay? So here's ultimately what I'm telling you is this. 
that, that, by the way, is the first gasoline ever. ever that's really cool looking, isn't it? First time they ever had an actual drive-up gasoline place that was in the early 1900s, and that was in Pennsylvania, I believe. Journeys have a place of launch, and they have a place of landing. In other words, they have an inception, a beginning, and a destination. They have a place of launch, and they have a place of landing. But we have to make sure that we do not forget the distance, the life that links the two, the thing between the beginning and the end, because ultimately, that is where progress is made. This is where I started. That's where I'm going. But there's all this stuff in between that has to be dealt with in order to ultimately arrive at your landing point. Does that make sense? Make sense at all? So here's our thoughts. Oh, by the way, at the first gas station, they had the first roadmaps also. For the first time ever, there were roadmaps. I almost did something. I want to see if you would have thought it was funny. I would love to do a competition where I take an 80-year-old person with bad eyesight and absolutely no technology skills and give them a GPS. And I also want to take a 16-year-old kid who just started driving and give them a fold-out map and see who can get to the destination first. Don't you think that would be awesome fun? That would be awesome fun. Anybody volunteers out there, we will do that. We will videotape it. We'll have a little fun with it. That was my goal. Tim's laughing like, I would do it and I'm not 80, but... I think it would be awesome to do that. So, so these are the things I want you to think about today is there's a beginning, there's an end, but it's ultimately that journey in between the two that we're focused on. There's a launching and a landing, but there's a lot of life in between that links the two together. And we're going to focus on that today. The end of Psalm 23, which is the psalm we've been kind of basing this whole series on, uh, says this. We've learned a lot of things about the good shepherd. We've learned a lot of things about the way the shepherd takes care of his sheep. He leads them by quiet waters or still waters. He restores their soul. He gives them a peaceful place to sleep and a good thing to eat and a great thing to drink. And then, so the psalm has talked about the past. The psalm has talked about the present, and now the psalm is going to tell us a little bit about the future of what the shepherd does for the sheep, and that is, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell or shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We've talked about the past, we've talked about the present, now we're looking at that destination thing in the end. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the first thought that I want you to think, if you're a note taker, write this down. Uh, The first thought for the day is this, is that the power of God secures your assurance. Um, So there's, there's some doctrinal teaching here about what it means as a believer to have assurance. Here's how that works out practically, okay? Um, as a pastor, I've met lots of different people with lots of different understandings of assurance. There are some people who think that because they said a prayer and got wet when they were eight, that it doesn't matter how they live or what they're doing, and no, I, no matter whatsoever how they treat God between now and then, they have this idea of assurance that they're going to go to heaven because of this one thing that happened a long time ago. There are others who strive and serve and help and do all kinds of things to serve the Lord. But when you really get them to be honest with you, they go, I hope I make it. Like, I hope I'm doing good enough. I I hope I get there, right? See, those are two completely different understandings of spiritual assurance. And both of them, in my humble opinion, 
are incorrect. You see, there is no doubt that the Bible teaches us that there is a, a reality of, of, the, of assurance that we should have as a believer. And I'm going to push that very hard today. That for those who are truly followers of Christ, you have absolute and complete assurance. And as this point says, the power of God secures that assurance from the beginning. It is he who did it, it is he who is doing it, and it is he who will guarantee it. Okay? But... The evidence from that shows up, not just in what happened one time, one day, a long time ago, but the evidence from that shows up in the fact that my life is showing out the power of God as I live. Like There's evidence that you can look and see. The Bible calls those fruits from my life or your life or other people's lives that gives us reason to expect the assurance of God because we see the power and presence of God in our life today. Now... Let's be clear. I don't mean every day, and I don't mean in every moment, because real, genuine believers have an ebb and flow to their life. And sometimes real, genuine believers go through a short season of a lack of faith. Sometimes real believers go through a season of destruction where they feel like they would like to just wilt. Sometimes real believers need somebody else to pick them up and help them and encourage them because they're struggling. But I can't tell you how many times I've done a funeral for a 75-year-old who the members of the family are scouring through old Bibles hoping they can find something that might make them think that he was baptized at some time in his life so that they can feel better about his eternal destination because nothing about his life showed that off at all. That's not the kind of assurance that we're talking about. We're talking about a kind of assurance that can be lived out in the life of a genuine believer where you and I recognize that I'm not saved because I'm good. I'm not saved because I did all this stuff at church. I'm not saved because I've followed the right list or did the right things or checked the right boxes. That, that's not why I'm a believer. I'm a believer because of Christ. See, here's the thought for that, is that it's not that I have a problem as much as, as, much as uh, Jelly Roll would like us to believe. It's not that I have a problem and I need God to fix my problem. Okay? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. Pull up Apple Music, type in Jelly Roll. Don't play the ones with the E out beside it. Like that's, <laughs> okay, that's, which is probably most of them. Um, here's the thought. The problem is not that I take my problem to God and he fixes my problem. The issue is that people realize because of the grace of God, I am the problem and I'm asking him or responding to his call to repair, fix, and change me the problem. So when someone becomes a believer and their power of God is securing their assurance, he's also beginning to show on the journey from the place of launch to the place of landing that there's some growth and development where all of a sudden you start saying, oh my gosh, I can see God at work in this person's life. Makes sense? And our assurance comes from a blend of both what happened at the point of launch and what is happening in the life that links those two things together. 
And God is helping us recognize and see that he is alive in us, working in us, bringing about beautiful things in us. And because of that, we can trust him. I'm going to throw a couple of words out there for you that will help us understand why we're so confident that it is God who secures our assurance. The word surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The word surely is a very, very powerful Hebrew word. Uh, And it lays out a few specific things that we need to understand about that. The Hebrew word that is translated surely here is an adverb. It's used with the verb to announce that whatever the action of the verb is, is certain, 100% secure, and definite in every single situation. In this text, that means that the goodness and mercy of the shepherd absolutely, completely, and in every way will follow the sheep. Make sense? But the adverb modifies not only the verb, it also modifies the next one in English because of the way it's translated, why I highlighted and underlined the word and, because surely is not only about the top two lines, it's also about the bottom two lines. It clarifies that the sheep, and that's me and you folks, uh, absolutely and completely and in every way will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because of what he has done because of what he has done. So now that I've told you truth, let me show you the truth and the way that it shows up in someone's life. You may be familiar with the Apostle Paul. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote a little over a third of the New Testament. He wrote most of the different letters. Some of them are short. Some of them are longer. He's one of my favorite non-Jesus characters in all of the scriptures. Uh, And his life with the Lord is a storyline after storyline of a high point and low point and high point and low point. Let me give you a couple of examples here just to He's born in Tarsus. Uh, He's an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. He's also a Roman citizen. He was raised in Jerusalem, trained as a Pharisee. He was at the death and resurrection of Christ. He was present at Stephen's stoning. He persecuted Christians. He was converted, called, and commissioned all in the same moment on the road to Damascus. He stayed in Damascus for a short time, and then he leaves to try to learn more about the faith. He meets Peter and and he sees James in Jerusalem. The Hellenists there, the Greeks, they try to kill him and he flees back to Tarsus. He does some ministry in in Syria and Sicilia, uh, but they still doubt him as a believer. Ultimately, he meets up with uh, Barnabas in Antioch and the second visit to Jerusalem. He goes through a time of famine where there's not enough food for people. In his first missionary journey, which was about a year and a half with Barnabas, he spends... No little time, as the scriptural quote, in Antioch. And he writes the book of Galatians. He returns to Jerusalem for the apostolic council. Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch, but they dispute over John Mark, and it causes them to part ways. He loses his best friend, at least for a moment. Then there's another missionary journey. He takes a guy named Silas with him. They travel to southern Galatia and Asia Minor and Macedonia and all this different stuff that happens. And during that time, he spends a year and a half in Corinth, which is a church that causes all kinds of trouble and does all kinds of really, really ridiculous things. He arrives in Ephesus and he stays there for three years. He writes and he makes this brief painful visit back to Corinth because of this horrible stuff that's going on in their behavior. He returns to Ephesus and he writes what is known as the severe letter 
to the Corinthians, a letter that's not even in our scriptures because he actually repents of what he says in it. So this is, this is Paul who's trying to lead this new church in the world, and he gets so frustrated at one of the churches that he writes a letter that he goes, I should not have said that. You've done that before, haven't you? But we did it on a post. You made the post. You wrote it all out. You thought to yourself, I'm not actually going to post it. I'm just going to write it and get all my emotions out. It's healthy. It's good. It's what people do. And then you go, oh, I'm going to send it. And you send it. And then you go, oh, I can't take that back. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing that happened here. He travels to Macedonia. He meets Titus and Timothy and others. Ultimately, he's on a voyage to Rome and he's shipwrecked and he spends three months there. He finally does get to a Rome where he's under house arrest. He's released from house arrest. He goes to Spain. He writes 1 Timothy and Titus. He's rearrested. <laughs> he writes 2 Timothy from Rome and then he is killed. That's his storyline, okay? That guy who has lived that up and down, back and forth, good and bad life with God, writes this in 2 Timothy, his final last letter that he ever wrote, shortly before he dies. This is what old man Paul says about this tumultuous back and forth journey between the place of launch and the place of landing. This life that links the two following Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. He's writing to Timothy, this young guy who's about to live the same life Paul just did. Which is in you through the laying on of hands, my hands, for the Spirit of God gave us, uh, I'm sorry, for the Spirit of God gave us, uh, it does not make us timid, it gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, rather join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and his own grace, right? This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Think about that. That's, like, that, that's enough to just think for a while right there. The grace wasn't even given at the cross originally. It's given before the beginning of time. Then it's created and done formally at the cross, and then it shows up again at our conversion, and then it's also there with us as we live our life. The grace of God, so powerful from him. He says, but it is now, it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death. He's talking about the resurrection after the, after the crucifixion. He's destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed as herald and an apostle and a teacher. This is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because, very important word, he says, I know. English doesn't do a great job with this word. We're going to play with this, have a little fun with it. It's, it's really amazing. He says, I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced, that is the English attempt to try and translate the word know even better. I know and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Did I tell you that our security is in God's hands, that it's the power of God that brings about our security and confidence? The word I know, I do, means I have become convinced. 
You know what I'm talking about. There's something you know at the beginning, and then you test it. And then it proves to be true, and you test it again. And it proves to be true, and you test it again. And it proves to be true, and you test it again. And it proves to be true, and you test it again. And it proves to be true. And over, all of a sudden now, when you say the word, I know that, it's not the same thing as the way you said, I know that, when you first knew it. When you first knew it, you were saying, I really think this is right. But after you've lived it, and it has worked its truth in you over time, then all of a sudden, I do, you know, you have become convinced that this is real. I know and I am convinced that he is able to keep me until that day. This is beautiful, you guys. This is beautiful. What that means is that for those of us who are walking with the Lord, who have responded to his grace, who genuinely know him and are his followers, that, that I don't have to look at my choices and behavior and all that as if that's what keeps me secure. He is, who keeps, he is the one who keeps me secure. So what that means is that you and I get to live our life out of our security not to become secure. There's a difference. There's a huge difference. Get this. So for the Apostle Paul, even after, these are just a few things, even after being chased through a rock wall, fleeing from numerous situations where people were actively trying to kill him, leading a church through a famine where they didn't have enough food, experiencing relationship conflict with those he loved the most, having to correct churches whose lives had gone wrong and being arrested and incarcerated for preaching the gospel. Even after that, he is even more convinced that God has his life handled and secure. Which leads us to the next thought. And that is that Jesus' abilities and his actions unveil our assurance. Here's what I mean. As we walk with the Lord and as we observe him helping and being there and showing up and always being there, that for us makes our assurance in heaven not just something that we learned from the pages of the Bible, but it's something that I do. We know because the pages of the Bible have come to life in the experiences that we have had with Christ as we follow him actively. Think with me for a second. This is one of the primary reasons why it's so important that we have a healthy church, that we have a healthy relationship with people in the church, that we walk through people's challenges and they walk through ours, because it's in those moments that we see Jesus work. Let me lay this out very practically for you. Okay? If you are someone who has intentionally stayed away from other people's drama because you don't like drama and you just try to keep drama as far away from you as you can, which means when your friend 
goes through something horrible. Your friend who's a believer now, this story only works if we're talking about Christians, okay? But your friend who's a believer goes through a divorce or loses a job or faces trauma in some way, and you decide to pull away because that's a lot, and I don't really want to, I don't know if I can deal with the pain that they're experiencing. That's a lot. That, that's, I hate that for them. I hate they're going through it, but I'm going to pull back away from that. Here's what happens. You miss out on seeing what Jesus does in their life, his abilities, his actions that unveil their assurance. You miss out on it. You don't get to see it. And then that happens once and twice and five times and 10 times. You don't realize that God is not just giving you an opportunity to prepare. I'm sorry, an opportunity to help that person in need. No, it's so much bigger than that. God is prepping you for the, bo- the horribly bad time that's coming in your future by watching what God does in their trauma and in their lives and in their difficulty. So when the time comes that you're the one with the drama, you're the one with the, the pain, you're the one with the struggle, you've watched Jesus do it over and over and over again. And so your confidence level in him is really strong. But for so many who've kept their distance from the church, who've kept their distance from relationships, who've kept their distance from those who are hurting, who've tried to stay away from those who are guilty and are walking through their own uh, redemptive struggle and process, who've kept their distance from that, when you find yourself standing in that place, you don't have a lot of experience with Jesus' abilities and actions, and so your level of confidence goes way down from where it could be. Have you ever seen this? I don't know if you've seen this. Have you ever seen a person, a believing Christian person, who goes through something that in your mind would be the worst thing you can imagine happening, and yet they're getting through it? Like, like, like they're, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's without difficulty or, or drama, as I said earlier. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying they haven't given up. Like, they haven't quit. They're still moving forward. I, I will guarantee you something. The reason why that believer is able to move forward and stay strong and have some semblance of peace and hope in their life in the midst of that horrible thing is, get this, folks, This is not their first rodeo watching Jesus help difficult times. This is not their first experience. It might have been their first experience in their own life, probably not. But they've definitely walked through this with other people. And as God walks them through, his abilities, his actions unveil this assurance in them. Remember, we have a place of launch, a place of landing, but it's the life lived in between that connects the two Together, and as we walk through that life with Jesus, it makes us so much stronger and so much better. 2 Timothy 1.13 and 14 says this, again, just what Paul has said earlier. He says, what you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, 
with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. So that's what I'm talking about. These, these experiences that you've had that have helped you develop some strength and confidence in God's security in your life. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And that leaves us to our third thought here. The importance of sound teaching is that it reminds you of your assurance. Now, you don't have to raise your hand about this, but have you guys ever heard a preacher say something stupid? I didn't ask if you've heard me say something stupid, because some of you have. Joni, stop smiling so, so much. Like, like I, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. I'm the one who about 10 years in wanted to burn every set of notes that I'd ever made. So I'm like, I don't think I knew what I was talking about in so many of those things when I was 23, 24 years old, you know. Um, anyway, here's what I'm getting at. I'm not saying that uh, by any means that, that pastors are always worth listening to because there are a lot of them that aren't. I'm also not saying that to, per, to, to bring about sound teaching, you have to be a pastor. I'm not saying that either, okay? But all of us need sound, reliable teaching. And if I could for just a second, I want to tell you, keep in mind, you're hearing from a human not, not just when I'm teaching, when Tim's teaching, when any other person's teaching, you're hearing from a human, which means that the person themselves is not Jesus, okay? The person themselves is not perfect, and the person themselves is not going to get it right all of the time, okay? At the same time, we have to be cautious, and we don't want to submit ourselves to someone who's not getting it right a lot, right? Someone whose confidence overtakes their ability, you know, we have to be cautious about that, okay? That, that, that happens. It really happens. I, I have personally walked out of a church service before because I just could not stomach what I was hearing. Just couldn't, like, this is just ridiculous. I have had to, this was no fun, I had to get up in a church where I was the pastor and escort someone off the stage because it was just way out of line. That's when I learned that pastors are supposed to be cautious about who they let talk. You know, and, and that we ought to put a little thought into what's going to be said ahead of time, you know, before we just hand somebody a microphone. But here's what I'm getting at. Whether it's in a service like this or in a Bible study afterwards or in a small group that meets at a house or in a conversation over coffee at a restaurant, regardless of where it's happening, sound teaching, good, solid, reliable Bible teaching is important for us as a believer because it reminds us day in and day out of the reality of the security that we have in Christ. If you'll think about it, nearly every Christian ritual is about remembering. We're baptized. There is immediate things. People see that, that kind of thing. But, but it's also supposed to be something that we look back to in our memory. We take communion. We don't have one of these tables that we use here, but in the church I grew up in, the little table, you know what it said on the front of it, right? You got, it said, this do in remembrance of me on the front of the table. It's because communion was about remembering being reminded of what it is that Christ has done, sound teaching will remind you of this assurance that comes from Christ. So my advice to you today is that you need a rhythm of reliable teaching in your life. I'd encourage you. And honestly, once a week at a Sunday morning is probably not plenty. Not anywhere near enough. I, I personally, 
uh, because I don't get this because I'm up here and not out there. So I don't. Get, so I, I'm listening to multiple messages a week, podcasts, other things. I need that sound teaching in my life in order for me to constantly be reminded of my own assurance and for my confidence level to stay where it's supposed to be in Christ because I'm hearing it from the Word of God on a regular basis. So I'll say this, and we're nearing the end here, is that secure believers, when, when we know that we're secure, when we're reminded of our security, when we have been given confidence of our security because we're walking with Jesus and we see him being faithful over and over and over, and when we realize that whatever security we have is something he gave us, it came from him, well, then that kind of mindset, that kind of faith, that secure believer will live from their assurance and not for their assurance. Here's what I mean. So this is a relational reality. Let's use a dating or marriage situation as an example. If a wife has a husband and she feels confident that as long as she does this and always does this and always makes sure that happens and never falls short on this, and always gets that done, she's confident her husband's going to stick around. Does that sound like a secure life? No. No. And I'm not saying that in a relationship you don't have commitments that you need to live up to. I'm not saying that. But how about this? When a wife has a husband and she feels so loved by this man that she knows that even when she falters in this area, even when it's a bad day in that area, even when she doesn't necessarily show up in this particular area, and even when maybe didn't get it done today in that area, at the end of the day, when she thinks about her husband, she knows he's not going anywhere. He loves me. That's working from your security instead of working for it. Because here's what happens to that wife. And I could have told the story as if it was the other way around, uh, gender-wise. But that's when that wife goes, well, I don't want to falter in this area because this is a man who's there for me no matter what. I want, I want to do really well in this other area. I want to really, really knock it out of the park in that area because I love this guy and he loves me so much and he's not going anywhere no matter what. But, but I want to be good to him and he wants to be good to me. That's the motivation of a believer when they know their security in Christ, I don't serve Jesus because if I don't, I'm not secure. I serve Jesus because even when I'm not, I am secure. He gets that from me because of who he is and what he's done and what he keeps doing and what he continually convinces me of. Am I making sense? And that's why he gets it should be why he gets it from you as well. So many believers try so hard to prove their assurance with their works, all the while hoping that they are good enough to get to heaven. And that is not the gospel. We are not good enough for heaven. We will never be good enough for heaven. But thank God that Christ is good enough to be our substitute, our sacrifice, and our salvation. And when we experience this kind of confidence, it changes the way that we think, the way that we make decisions, the way that we handle our own failures because we know the assurance that comes from Christ. Colossians 1.13 and 14 says, I'm going to read a couple of verses and be done. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Transferred. We've been shifted. We were there. We're now here. We have been moved. Okay? We are not in the same place we were born into. We are in a new place because of Christ, in whom we have redemption because of the place, because of being in his beloved son. We have the forgiveness of sins. So I'll ask you this question. A lot of us in American lingo, we like to ask, is Jesus in you? It's not a bad question. It's not really the primary biblical question, though. The primary biblical question is, are you in Christ? Are you in him? Is my assurance because of him? Am I been transferred from a life that I'm living, I'm in charge of, I'm taking care of, I'm responsible for, to a life where he is guiding, he is directing, he is securing, he is saving, he is directing. In Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, just these three verses, says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of the call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is that landing place, launching and landing from beginning to end. The landing looks like this. The dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, Encourage one another with these words. This is encouraging. That even though our launch place may have been sketchy, a lot of us were born into all different kinds of things. We were all born into sin. Then there's this life that's lived between launch and landing, and this is where all the interesting stuff happens where God's given us confidence, where he has reached out and saved us by his grace, where we've responded to that grace, where he has locked our eternity in heaven and we can be confident with him, where he shows us on a day-to-day basis how thoroughly there for us he is and where our confidence grows and grows and grows. And then one of these days, we either die and are then resurrected, or if we happen to still be walking around and he comes back, we meet them in the air and we have landed. I realize the metaphor is a little mixed there. I'm saying landed. The scripture's saying lifted. Same, same thing. It's end. It's the, 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 the goal has shown up. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is an encouragement to me personally to know that I can't mess this up because you have handled it. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would respond to your offer of grace. That if there's anyone here today that just has never submitted their life to you and responded to your offer to be the sacrifice for their sins, to trade with them their guilt and their shame for your righteousness. Lord, if there's, no, if there's anyone here today that hasn't done that, I pray that your spirit would speak loudly to them. I ask that your holiness would draw them to you. And I, my hope, friend, in the room is that you would say yes to Jesus. Maybe you're here today and with everybody's head bowed and our eyes are all closed, maybe you're here today and that's you. You're like, that's me. I, 
I need to respond to the grace of Jesus. I need to say yes to him. I'm not gonna call you up front. I'm not gonna point you out or call your name or anything, but just so I can be praying for you, would you just pop your hand up and back down? That's all that's gonna be, just, just a little moment. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else that would just say, yeah, that's me. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Wow. That's so exciting. Jesus, take these people as they respond once again to you, Lord, as they bow once again to you, whether it be the first time this has ever happened in their life or as this is a reminder of an ongoing relationship, Lord, we trust you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we worship the Lord? There'll be somebody in the back room to pray for you. If you'd like to pray with a, one of our leaders, uh, I don't mind joining you back there as well if you need to pray with somebody. You're also welcome to come and kneel here by yourself and people will leave you alone and let you pray. Uh, let's, let's worship him. Let's respond to him. I encourage you to, to take that next step, whatever that is.